I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. It's it's just the kind of like uh you know archive basement superhero stuff that I find funny because every so often the you know one of the animated movies will surface a character obviously the Lego Batman movie did this in spades where they just have a whole scene where the joke is that the Joker Zach Galifianakis's Joker is naming off all of the villains that he's bringing along and it gets even more it's so, so much more improbable by the end and you're like wait are these actually Batman villains <laughs> and they are of course um, oh yeah I just watched this for the second time Teen Titans go to the movies and uh they there's a whole meta thing about Robin I think I even talked about this a whole meta thing about Robin wanting his own movie um and them not being able to get into the premiere of the next Batman movie and on the list are the I think what are they called the challengers of the unknown I think that's what the, the name oh, of it yeah. is and they're like yeah. five guys they kind of look like Fantastic Four they're like five guys in weird retro spacesuits and they all have the same haircut and they all look the same and talk the same and and I was like I'm sure that is a real DC it is a real comic D, yeah DC DC Comics characters and there's a reason why I don't know. <laughs> Why I don't know who they are and where they fit into. They are basically the Fantastic Four without superpowers. Ah, well, that's, that's not essentially exciting. what they are. Uh, they were co-created by, I believe, Jack Kirby too, and so I think kind of took it over to Fantastic Four and kind of took it to eleven. Okay, but yeah, there are so many characters that um, you can throw in there, thinking it's a joke or it was created for the the movie, and they're totally real. So the Condiment King is a real character. I think he was created for Batman, the animated series, but they just started using him in other places. And uh, eventually everything kind of goes into continuity and somebody will discover it and then reuse it somewhere else. It's it's fucking crazy. But the DC Universe is actually really a wonderful, crazy hodgepodge of different genres and styles and uh, characters that seem absurd mixed with characters who are dark and gritty. So you have everything from like John Constantine to like Sugar and Spike or Space Cabbie. I mean, there's some really weird stuff. Ultra the multi-alien or uh, Metamorpho the element man. You know, there's just so many weird, wonderful characters. Uh, man Bat. Um, so yeah, it goes really all over the place. And I kind of love how varied and strange it is. And I think that DC at its best has always been understanding those various tones rather than trying to force them all to fit the same tone and just letting it be strange, letting it have pockets for different audiences and different, different genres. So you can have a horror book on one end and you can have like a kid's adventure story on the other end. And it's, it's all good. I, I, I mean, there's a character called Mr. Banjo, who was an enemy of the Shazam Captain Marvel. And I believe his deal is that he was a Nazi spy who used his banjo music to send secret codes to the Nazis. I mean, I think that's what it worked. But I mean, that's all real. You know, there's some weird. Uh, I, uh, the, I think the greatest um, Captain Marvel villain as as cool as Black Adam is, because he's getting his own movie, I think the greatest one is Mr. Mind, who is drawn like a little cute cartoony worm. 
you know, like a little inchworm guy who's tiny. And he has this little radio that he wears around his neck and it has a speaker that projects his voice so that everyone can hear how he's an evil world conqueror. <laughs> and That's, could that have been the inspiration for, is it Plankton from SpongeBob, do you think? I think he, it's almost exactly Plankton from yeah. SpongeBob. Yeah. I mean, but it's this tiny little guy who will conquer the world. Except Mr. Mind is actually, I think Piper said he was adorable. He's this <laughs> tiny little guy who looks like he'd be a friendly worm character in a children's book, except he wants he wants to destroy and conquer and subjugate all life on Earth. So we should probably mention that we we are back again, <laughs> miraculously, and we do have... We, we interrupt this Mike talking about DC Comics, sorry, we interrupt <laughs> this t- Mike talking about DC Comics characters endlessly to actually start the beginning of the show. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So uh, joining us, of course, is uh, a returning guest, uh, joining us for the first time remotely, Mr. Patrick Johnson. How are you doing, Patrick? hey Hey, everybody. Uh, I'm doing, under the circumstances, really great. Yay! That's the best we can hope for. It, yep. Everything has an asterisk. It, it, it's a great thing for for shut-ins like me have been have been training for this moment, you know, uh, ahead of the pan- pandemic, so that now it, it, there's all suddenly all my friends who did didn't have time to play games. You know, I've got a, I've got a games group going. Um, uh, I've got I've, you know, life is good actually. All right, the uh, the rise of the planet of the shut-ins. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's like you've you, your whole life to this point has been one big Rocky montage for this day. <laughs> at least, at least in in recent yeah uh, in, in recent years, and now we've uh, everyone has to adapt to to the new reality. So everyone's social skills are degrading, and so I feel like I'm more on an even on an even keel with the rest of humanity. It's nice. I've got to say, I feel the same way, too. I think that one thing, and it's kind of scared me as we've started recording these again, I think that I'm less articulate and able to recall little bullshit factoids than I was before. (laughs) And I don't know if I can get that back. I don't know if this is like one of those muscles that you don't that don't heal. And and the sad thing is, outside of this context, it's a completely useless skill. Well, but, but but Mike, it's what matters. It's definitely what matters. Well, you guys have the great uh, advantage of having the shut-in world being uh, beneficial, but it just means my kids have to stay home for more hours of the day. So I get mm. I get less guilt-free time to just bum around and watch a movie or something. So I have to be I have to be on my game more. For sure. Oh, yeah. But it's okay. There's no such thing as a free lunch. I'll take I'll take your hours. You take mine next time. Okay, yeah. you're probably watching a lot of children's media, though. So I mean, uh, that's the thing I think yeah. that comes with parenthood. Uh, I I try to not rewatch the same things too many times. I think that I've reached my limit on the number of times I'll I'll sit down and watch Lego Batman movie all the way through because it's <laughs> it's got to be and it's got. I I think I've probably seen it probably two dozen times all the way through, and it's a great movie. Um, it's just I can't watch it as often as my household wants to watch it just can't be done and the the last big uh the big hit was the lego star wars holiday special which was their attempt to uh i guess to try to take back the 
stunning embarrassment, the for, the try-to-be-forgettable embarrassment of the original Star Wars Holiday Special. Is it a shot-for-shot remake? No. That would... <laughs> no. No, no, no. With it's a... Creepy grandpa Wookiee looking at porn. <laughs> no. And, no. And uh, probably a, a musical number for a cast member of the Golden Girls, I think. <laughs> Betty White is still around, and you can get her to sing a song for the... <laughs> New I, Star Wars holiday I special. I think there's. I think there is. I think perhaps one. And I haven't sat down and watched the whole thing. I think there's perhaps one call out to the. Uh, uh, it's a sly reference. I think it's a sly reference to B. Arthur singing in the tavern, which I. Mm-hmm. I think hands down, I think that is the best part of the the original holiday special. Not count, weirdly heartfelt. Not counting, I guess the the animated the sequence, which I think is what really should the only thing that really should survive. But yeah, B. Arthur singing it, doing kicks on the bar. Uh, but no, it's it's I do watch the same things over and over again. I know I know what they're watching, and most of it I just I don't want to watch Pokemon. I'm just, it's just after a certain. Are your point kids in into time, Pokemon? Well, my oldest is into Pokemon. I I I. I I watch it enough and listen to him talk about it so that when he's like paging through the Pokemon encyclopedia and talking about the attributes, because let's be honest, Pokemon as a thing is just a delivery vehicle for kids to memorize names and attributes. (laughs) So, Casey, I I hate to burst your bubble on this, but that is literally what every one of our childhood Toy commercial uh, nostalgia shows were all about. I, I know I mean, this. I know <laughs> they were. I think more than any generation, we really don't have a much of a. We, we live in a giant glass house, and that giant glass house is my childhood. Was a toy commercial, <laughs> <laughs> probably more than any generation. It was so. It was. I mean, at that point, I know that Ronald Reagan had uh, scrapped a lot of the rules about the separation between children's entertainment and advertising. And uh, the toy the toy companies were going to go crazy with that. So, yeah, everything was a toy. Everything was an angry toy. I think Orson Welles said of the Transformers movies, which was one of his last <laughs> roles, that uh, I think he was asked to describe it somewhere, and he described it as uh, toys being terrible to each other. Oh, my God. <laughs> and- so... I, I watched uh, I watched H Bomber guys lengthy uh, analysis of the Transformers movie, oh, which yeah. uh, I, I found kind of worthwhile. And he said that apparently it was it was a major. I actually remember this it was a major psychological blow to children of the eighties when Optimus Prime died. Yes, it was, it, it, and uh, that for the people who it was a major psychological consequence. But for the people writing it, they were just clearing out last year's stock. So yes. that they could so they could sell us the new model, uh, yes. and the the idea that we would form emotional attachments to these characters didn't even really occur to them at the time. Yes, which... uh, that actually happened. Uh, they that movie Transformers the the movie from nineteen eighty six I believe I that's right is like it is a toy snuff film. <laughs> <laughs> it's still probably the best piece of Transformers media until the Bumblebee movie, but. It's pretty shocking and weirdly transgressive when you watch it and you realize that these are characters that kids had been watching on their screens after school every day and suddenly uh, fighting got real fucking real on that in that show because it would always been sort of the same formula as G.I. Joe where there's just lasers filling the air. Nobody really gets hit or they get hit in the shoulder and they fall down and everything's mostly okay. Everything is set to stun. And suddenly, 
Uh, Megatron's playing for keeps, and he kills a room full of the main characters of the Transformers, like, immediately, including the death of the character Ironhide execution style. And (laughs) there are characters that get shot, there's a smoking hole in their chest, and then smoke starts pouring out of their eyes and mouth, and then their lit up blue eyes go dark gray, and it is insane. There's a scene later in the movie where Starscream gets blasted, and he, like, turns into this dark carbon brick, and then just crumbles into pieces. I mean, the it, movie, the, if it was m- made with live action people, is at least as violent as like Ninja Scroll, but it's robots. <laughs> you get- but this, that, that attitude of cynicism and in, in the pursuit of commercialism is at the heart of so much of my 80s childhood. Uh, you know, it, you can you can see it in uh, just so many projects that we that I know, knew and loved uh it's like they probably didn't care any more than that. It was it was just really a toy commercial, and yeah, that's, that was uh, the thing with the the He-Man toys too. Is that every version of the new line came out? They'd have a new variant of He-Man and Skeletor, but they'd have all these new characters, and there's just this pressure on the cartoon to clear those characters out or show these new characters, even though people want to continue to see like Beast Man and and. Man at Arms and all these characters are like, no, no, we got to show these new guys. I think there's a cowboy themed He Man character, <laughs> but there's just a lot of stuff. But yeah, Transformers the movie is probably the most aggressive version of that, where they'd violently kill characters that you'd seen on TV to replace them with new characters. Um, though the the GI Joe movie came out shortly after that and had to go through massive changes because of that psychic toll you talked about with Optimus Prime that children were screaming and crying in movie theaters, that they were traumatized. They got all of these angry letters and phone calls from parents at Hasbro, and they're like, shit, what do we do? They're in the middle of making G.I. Joe the movie where they were going to kill the lead hero guy, Duke. He gets, like, stabbed through the chest with this thrown, like, spear that's made out of a, a snake by Serpentor. Um, and... They just have him collapse. And then at the end of the movie, they add this ADR thing of, hey, everybody, Duke's okay. (laughs) And and that's entirely put in there because they were going to kill him, too. And they were just scrambling to go, oh, my God. Like you mentioned, exactly, Patrick. Oh, my God, kids actually care about these characters. And I don't think they ever expected that. Actually, I think. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just—is it the—is the case where it's a show that's called Transformers, and if a couple die, you've still got Transformers. With He-Man, you can't kill He-Man because there's no, there wouldn't be a He-Man show. And the same thing with I—I I think that there it was partly, of course, the the like we got to design new toys so kids will buy a bunch of new stuff for the next year. But it also is, hey, they're they're just Transformers. You could just swap out. Rodimus Prime for Optimus Prime, no big fucking deal. <laughs> kids are gonna kids are gonna buy that toy and are gonna pretend to be Judd Nelson. <laughs> Rodimus Prime throwing the fist up at the end. <laughs> um, but Rodimus Prime is kind of hilarious because have you seen what his vehicle mode is? What he turns into? It looks remarkably like that car that Homer Simpson designed. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's like the most 80s weird RV thing that I have ever seen with these massive exhaust pipes coming up through the sides and shot through the back. It looks like a tractor trailer weird it's like it's midlife like a, crisis mobile. Like an El Camino. It's like an El Camino. You know, those cars that were like a yeah. just half between a truck and a car. It's like an El Camino, but if you just added an extra long camper shell on the back of it, added a ridiculous red and yellow flame job, and then, of course, you're right, those giant chrome exhaust pipes that spit flames, that would be what <laughs> Rodimus Prime looks like, which is not as cool, especially at the time, uh, than, you know, a long haul trucker, which had Mike and Patrick have I ever told you my take on uh, on the choice for Optimus Prime's vehicle, and then when they ended up changing him after the f- first gen- couple generations have gone by, have I done this before, Mike? No, I mean Optimus Prime has always been some variation of a semi truck, though I think he's been a fire truck before. Yeah. So okay, the history is as you as you well note. Uh, Optimus Prime, the Transformers come about in 1984, and, uh, you know, this is this is a cl- 10 years after Smokey and the Bandit, there's, uh, and Convoy and what have you, so the, the, the trucker is sort of, even though these toys are designed in Japan, they are pri- primarily for an American audience, um, they ch- chose the leader as, who's the backbone of the American economy, salt of the earth, uh, the blue class hero, uh, who's the long haul trucker? And of course, the guy who's the leader of the altruistic team of do goodering robots is a long haul trucker. That's what it, that's that is his his mode, and that that goes clear through until nine eleven, wherein firemen are the heroes of the moment, and for a brief period of time. The America's hero ceases to become a trucker and becomes a firefighter, and then some number of years they just quietly revert him back into being a truck of some carrying cargo of some sort. So it's interesting that they've they followed the curve of like America's hero, trucker, 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 firefighter, firefighter, trucker, trucker, trucker. That's that that's that is the estimation of I think Japanese toy designers thoughts about uh american children's morality system i think but the weird thing is that the japanese toys didn't even determine who was who who was a good guy who was a bad no, guy. no they didn't no they didn't. it was like multiple transforming robot toy lines that they just kind of threw together in you know they got licensed by american hasbro which is why the the size of these characters why you have these little bumblebee ones that are kind of cheap and you have these big expensive ones like optimus prime because they're from multiple toy lines and then they just have to slap a logo uh, for either Autobot or Decepticon on all of them. And the strange thing is that it was uh, an American creator, I think Bob Budiansky, I think his name is, who had to name all of these characters and decide what side each toy was on before they started making the Marvel um, comics of the Transformers that actually gave them kind of a story that somebody had to come up with uh, a storyline for these toys. And that's the one that stuck. Like, they decided that the weird gray handgun, uh, which would never be made as a toy now, I just imagine a steel gray gun that looks realistic (laughs) as a toy would... I mean, so you want to talk about a character that's had to change over uh, the decades. Uh, Megatron, who looked like a realistic toy gun in the 80s, and I think he's been everything from, like, a tank to a jet to a not realistic ray gun. It's kind of a green and purple one. So they've done all sorts of stuff with him, but uh, they definitely aren't making him into like a Walther PPK. I think <laughs> with a massive uh, <laughs> stock on it and um, like this 
looks like some kind of suppressor and a scope. It is a insane looking gun, but um, also when he transforms, sometimes he can be held by a human, even though he's a 30 foot tall robot. <laughs> sometimes he can be held by another robot who's smaller than him. I mean, who the fuck knows? There's a cartoon where uh, Soundwave, the guy who turns into a cassette player, shrinks small enough for a human to put him in his back pocket. Yes, that would be a really heavy. So, that'd be very heavy, I think. Because you want to talk about because he has to be the just general physics of Transformers. <laughs> Sh- shall we? Should we? Do we have uh, there's to? No, I mean, where the hell does Optimus Prime's trailer come from? Where? <laughs> uh, some of the images are kind of funny with that back in the day, and I would always think about that because he'd just be running, he'd transform, and then from off camera, the trailer would just pop in. <laughs> Got that Jetsons car technology. Exactly. You know, who the, the fuck knows? Because it just looks cool. That's 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 the, the main thing to it. But speaking of children's programming, something happened recently that has got the internet in an uproar, but a positive uproar. People are happy about this. Oh, good. Positive um, uproars. Positive uproars are are wonderful, and you take them when you can. I think, especially living in the the horrible nightmare that we live in right now, um, positive nightmares um, are are wonderful things. Where you just go, oh my god, a terrible thing happened to a thing I don't like, <laughs> and um, <laughs> it, it's it's sort of a sad telling world that we live in that our joy primarily seems to come from Schadenfreude these days, mm. but. The PBS Kids show Caillou was canceled. Oh, oh. I, are, Patrick, are you familiar with Caillou? Because it sounds no, I like don't, I don't uh, know it at all. okay. So this is—I mean, I obviously don't have children. Casey does, so that may be where he knows it from. But um, Caillou was a PBS show. The episodes I, I looked this up were made between like ninety-five and two thousand, but they've been replaying them for twenty years on PBS. And this is a kid's cartoon about a kid named Caillou, who's like a five-year-old, who the show, I believe its purpose is, is to teach kids how to deal with their emotions. So Caillou goes to the store and, you know, that little, it's like like that little, you know, coin-operated rocket ship or whatever that's out there that kids want to ride on. And like he goes in there, puts a coin in, it goes for a little bit, then it stops, and he gets upset that it stopped, because, you know, obviously it's not going to turn on forever. And then he throws a tantrum, and then his helicopter parents come in and uh, tell him that everything is okay. And sometimes his tantrums are, like, destructive, with him, like, really pinching his infant baby sister or breaking shit, and they never get upset with him. And the thing to understand about Caillou as well is that he has incredibly whiny fucking voice Yeah, that is, like... It is like nails on the chalkboard of your soul. <laughs> and he kind of looks like one of the aliens from Close Encounters. <laughs> so and there's a, and then the thing you find out really quickly, you're like, what the fuck is this? A show where he's just like, mommy, mommy. It's just like that anything sets his fucking kid off. And you're just like, oh, my God. If the this is like the show that launched a thousand vasectomies, but <laughs> it it just it is really it's weird because I came across it just flipping through through channels and I'm like, what the fuck is this? So I look it up on the internet and I find out there's actually a lot of parents that hate Caillou because their children are modeling their own behavior and the right, tone of their right. voice off of this character and throwing tantrums and kids have to have the show kind of banned in their household mm. that their kids are told to not use their Caillou voices. 
And now that this show is canceled, all of this built up anger and, and hatred of this character is just flooding the internet with this sense of relief. It's like a, like a lanced boil. I, I think in my, my opinion on it is I think I've only seen a couple issues and, and my oldest didn't discover it. We didn't run into it. I, I learned about it from you, Mike. So look, fortunately, I was sort of inoculated from for, from the shock. You got the Caillou vaccine yes, early. I did. Uh, my youngest, who is now sort of weaning himself on, on the, the PBS app, the PBS app, which is, you know, their, their, sh- their shows from Sesame Street to Mr. Rogers to the new stuff. Um, so I think, I think I've seen a couple things and I'm glad that he doesn't, they're not modeling their, their sort of frustration stuff based on Caillou. Cause it is fucking annoying. I will say that Caillou is kind of obsolete because yes, you're right. The main purpose of it is to have situations where kids see, Oh, I, I see a stand in for myself getting upset about a real world everyday thing. And my parents helped me through to figure out how it is that I should get over this, how I should you know, calm myself down and how to fix the problem. The thing is, is it's been made obsolete by the fact that the in the new Mr. Rogers show called Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood is exactly that. It's the same thing. And Daniel Tiger is not annoying and he has the uh the wonderful optimistic power behind uh you know Mr. Rogers Force Ghosts behind the show. So you you're you're not likely to get upset about it. Um, the songs are all sweet and the characters are earnest and it totally gives that same, that same message of something that frustrates, scares, concerns, something, something distressing happens and Daniel Tiger finds a way to, you know, to, to deal with it. They already have that one solved. So PBS isn't losing anything from their programming on social emotional learning if they just flush Caillou down the memory hole. And I I guess I have to say that I'm fine with it. I'm fine with it. It's Okay, so the the morality behind this show isn't isn't bad. It's just the character is is terrible to behold. It's, yeah, the child, it's annoying. The child is is not just annoying, it's like he's kind of a sociopath and nobody ever really responds to him in the way that they probably should. I mean, I don't think they should start beating the child, but they should at least go, go, okay, this kid just went into his little sister's crib and pinched her really hard and kept pinching her while she cried. That is like a massive red flag. That is like (laughs) the the prologue segment of a movie where this kid grows up to be a serial killer. (laughs) Because obviously you can see what a little child is feeling. The inability to... (laughs) To empathize with another living thing that is clearly reeling in pain. Um, and he's got little angry eyebrows while he's doing it. And you're like, whoa. Because, I mean, you're going to do a story where there's a new baby in the house and the older kid doesn't feel like they're being paid attention and is upset about that. That is a story to do. That is a, clearly something I think kids should watch. But the idea of having this kid go as far and awful, because if you're a parent and your older kid is hurting your younger kid, the response is bigger than, oh, well, no, come on, Caillou, you have to... It's kind of like you have to kind of treat it like a mini emergency because you don't know if there's a problem far bigger than this incident. That's my single biggest trigger. That's my single biggest anger trigger, actually, uh, it's, is when the older one is hurting the younger one. And I'm just like, ah, I like it. I'm in totally flooded fight or flight response. So yeah, I it's, it would be impossible for me to have that reaction because of how much adrenaline is just like just shooting from my glands through my body at that moment. 
Oh it's God. also, it is interesting to me how they're clearly trying to model some positive behaviors through the show. But of course, kids are imitating not the conflict resolution necessarily, but the conflict, right? The, man, yeah. the manner of getting upset. I, I think we're still, we're, we're starting to take just story more seriously than we did apparently in my 80s childhood in terms of how it affects people at like a deep and developmental level. But we still don't understand it because we... We miss things like like that. That there are, are elements that are imitable um, by by young children that might not be what we consider to be the purpose of the of the project. It's uh, it's, it's something to be aware of and cautious of. It reminds me a little bit of uh, there are shows meant for older audiences that have terrible characters do things ironically. Uh, and I, I knew somebody who in her in her relationship. Her boyfriend would, I forget what the, what the what they were quoting, but would say like "shut up, woman," was a line from the show, and it was funny because it was, you know, it was meant in, it wasn't meant in any sort of earnest uh, or anything like that. It was just a. But then one day they got in a fight, and he was upset, and he mm. said "shut up, woman." And there oh. was no irony. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing is that, you know, this is the thing that we kind of learned. And this is actually a tool that a lot of alt-right communities use um, when you're dealing with things like, say, racism and stuff. You start with irony and everything inevitably becomes non-ironic. Yep. Of, yep. Inevitably, it just becomes a thing that you do and say and believe. And the idea of, oh, I'm just joking for the lulls because it's shocking – eventually goes away because you desensitize yourself to how shocking what you're saying is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, so, it occurs to me that you could take this analysis, and given that we're, we are now like 25 years older, you could take this analysis and you could look back at Beavis and Butthead, or not even Beavis and Butthead because they're animated characters, and so, and the most they're doing is just doing stupid shit. You could say you, Jackass would be a fantastic example. Um, yeah. Because Jackass is a, is a show that is legitimately shocking and... And a, a spectacle and funny in parts, and it certainly is not something that they that you would that they me anyone else MTV their lawyers uh, wanted to be responsible for people emulating um, because of course when you when you're on a show and you're Johnny Knoxville and crew uh, you're doing everything because it's part of a, it's part of an ironic uh, distanced sort of filtered presentation um, and that makes it okay in quotes i suppose um but yeah you don't you don't just want to unleash an army of people who think want to think that lighting things on fire and running their bodies into things and wheeling themselves off of things is a is a good idea you know <laughs> yeah it, i always get into this weird push and pull in my head and on one end um there are a lot of audience members that i don't know if they've been trained to be dumb but they take media very literally that if the main character does something, it's justified, and that the, anything that the show does is encouraging that. Even if it's clear that it's not, when you have a lot of shows, whether it's like Narcos or Breaking Bad, where the lead character is the villain of the show, whether the show says it overtly or not. Or Tony Soprano on The Sopranos, where the main character is someone that the show itself is not... Uh, endorsing or building up that the show itself when you watch it is clearly very critical of but people still kind of miss that point where Gordon Gecko gives a speech or you know Nathan Jessup from A Few Good Men gives a speech and we're supposed to think there's these idiots that seem to think that that is the voice of the movie rather than the villain well, I mean, because don't you think that's it's the a character that's 
Yeah. Don't you think it's the, to the same extent it's like Bonnie and Clyde, you know, uh, where how at a point when gangsters could have been basically pop folk heroes in to average everyday people who understood the immediate and deadly consequences of trying to do what they're trying to do. But nonetheless, there there is some kind of vicarious uh, pleasure. Even well-meaning, good-natured people could get some sort of vicarious pleasure from real-life people who were, you know, mur- like on a trail of murder and robbery across the yeah. United States. Like it's it's fascinating that like that obviously hasn't gone away. Like gangster pictures were super big during the Depression. Also, um, mm-hmm. I, I, well, I think it's a response to feeling powerless. Yeah, I think of course there's a power fantasy in somebody who doesn't follow society's rules. Or even if you don't condone the specific behavior, there's it, there's a rewarding feeling in going along with the emotional journey of somebody who bucks the system and and you know in in Breaking Bad, for example, when he uh, there, there's times where he goes from being a, just a small ordinary man to just flipping the bird to to all of the parts of society that many of us wish that we could, and whether that then translates into wanting to emulate the character specifically. I think a lot of people can relate to wanting to just, you know, walk away when they, when they feel like they're getting screwed or to to be able to respond in a way that uh, a, a normal, healthy person never would. Yeah, I think that the other thing that kind of regulates that is I you want to make people educated in how they take in media to the degree that they can pick up the hints that the main character is actually a bad person, the ways that either through music or performance, that when a character does something shocking, it's clearly there to make you go, oh my God, who is this person? And you're supposed to be horrified by them rather than going, yeah, take that. So when like Tony Soprano (laughs) murders somebody uh, after, you know, seeing these sad backstory parts of him that you're not supposed to go, oh yeah, take that. And the you know, that you have to be able to sort of watch it critically so that when like, Walter White poisons a small child that you're supposed to go, oh, my God, you're watching this transition into the outright villain of the show rather than going, yeah, he does what he wants. And this is how he protects his own interests. And it's weird because you want people to sort of get that because I don't think the solution is to make media dumber. I really don't. No. But I always worry about the sort of people, and you mentioned Beavis and Butthead before, (laughs) that people remember all of the stuff with these guys giggling at music videos on the couch, but they forget things like frog baseball. Yeah. Which is something I guarantee you was emulated by somebody. I actually have a Beavis and Butthead story, which is a a short one, which was I had a friend in in middle school who was a Beavis and Butthead fan, and I remember him walking around doing the, like, fire, fire, fire. Um, he was arrested for arson, and I never saw oh. him again. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, God. I don't know that Beavis and Butthead caused that, but uh, I do I do remember that being part of his personality. And, uh, <laughs> so it's a real chicken and the egg sort of moment. Did he right, like Beavis yeah. and Butthead because of his pyromania? Or did Beavis and Butthead... Um, just you know blossom this pyromania inside of him but I, I disagree i don't think i don't think making it there's any way to make it clear enough that these are the villains these are the bad guys that you shouldn't want to emulate them people do and people will because it's it's funny or it's interesting or it's fun to take on an aspect of the character that shouldn't translate into actually doing the terrible 
things, but uh, I don't. I think it's inevitable. I don't think it's that people don't get that this is supposed to be the villain. Uh, I think it's just that some part of their own personal expression comes out that they see something in themselves that they can then uh, use that character as a as, as a vehicle for. So you know, Gordon Gecko is it's it's not normal people don't watch that and think that oh I want to be like him. But if you're already a Wall Street trader, if you're already living for greed, then that speech might stir something in you, give a voice to something that you have can either feel ashamed about, you know, feel some sense of remorse, or you embrace the thing that you're gonna do anyway. Um, yeah, I think you're right about that. I think that uh, there is that part of them that it's kind of like that remark at the end of the movie Scream, where she says, like, you you sick fucks watch too many, you know, scary movies. And he says, don't you blame the movies? Uh, movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos more creative. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so it's... It's a little bit weird, but then I look at things, you know, like your horror movie or your crime movie, like the the lead character in Knives Out is a mystery writer. And one of the things that he has to do for his job, and this is a job of every mystery writer, is that you have to come up with creative murder plots. And you're coming up with a way of how to kill a human being and get away with it and then have another person discover that. So you have a person who would probably never kill anyone in real life, but it's just like, how would I get away with murder? <laughs> and then writes it down in something. And then, you know, how do you create the almost perfect murder? And then how does Columbo catch that guy? <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, but again, it's the same sort of thing we've we've talked about before with, you know, violent video games that I get a kick out of violent video games, but that's where it ends. I don't take it outside. You know, I mean, and the the limit of my enjoyment of real life violence is Nazis getting punched in the face. Yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of it. I don't I don't want to see somebody get circled and beaten, you know, Robert De Niro style. Um, You know, I don't I don't need to see that. But it is fun to go on a rampage in Grand Theft Auto or or Red Dead Redemption 2, which I'm finally now able to play. Which is a, was, I know that both of you have played before in the past. I'll say that oh, yeah. uh, when that it's happened twice now, where events will spontaneously happen on your path from one place to another, and both times that I saw people in hoods uh, attempting either either around a flaming cross or trying to erect a flaming cross, I just threw a stick of dynamite in the middle of them and ran away. Oh. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and that there are clansmen in Red Dead Redemption too, and unlike killing other people that give you negative bonuses to your uh, your karma, uh, there is no no penalty for <laughs> killing clansmen like in real life. Um, Actually, I, I wanted to commend uh, Red Dead too. I might have brought this up on a previous show, but for finding a new type of uh of karma karma free vil, uh, villain enemy because we've had we've had nazis and clansmen for for some time in films that if your hero protagonist takes them out then that's it's just understood and it's good but there's a lot of moral gray area with a lot of other types of henchmen but they found the civil the civil war the post civil war southern deserters who are trying to preserve the cause of the South oh, after yes. the Civil War and are brigands, which is a true, like, that's a real historical phenomena. And it's really easy and fun to hate those guys. And I feel like, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there's some film potential here. I think someone should take, take it up and run with it because 
Southern soldiers, you know, you can you can make all kinds of moral distinctions about their, you know, what they might be fighting for behind other than slavery. Uh, but if you if the Civil War is over and you're still fighting, then you know if it, you, you might be able to have uh, an Indiana Jones type just sort of tearing through, and uh, as easily as he does with Nazis with no real pe- you know penalties to his soul. Yeah, that thing, the other thing that I don't feel bad about is shooting at Pinkertons. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there's a mission in the multiplayer mode of Red Dead Redemption 2 where you and a bunch of people basically storm um, an office building um, near a factory of these big robber baron guys and steal all their shit. And you have to fight your way through a bunch of Pinkertons and like anti-union strike breakers. And I don't feel bad about that <laughs> because those people are fucking evil. Uh, and uh, that it's so we funny have that... any, we have a weekend despite people like them. Right. It's so funny that you are talking about this because uh, every so often my, uh, my eight, seven, almost eight year old will watch me play Red Dead Redemption. I try not to do too much horrible shit. It helps me be a little bit more of the white hat. But there is a there is an issue about the construction of the story, which I think I've heard Mike talk about at length. So I kind of know where the story is going, because you are with a gang of thieves who are increasingly doing things that are not virtuous. Um, mm-hmm. And we step into I think the bit this big second area of the game that's the town of Rhodes, where there is a sort of uh, what is what is the two the McCoys it's and kind of the, the Capulets and the Montagues. Yeah, they're they're warring families, Juliet. warring families, and they're both. It's suggested that there's some uh, you know that they were it was like oh well, they had they had the slaves before the Civil War and they'd still run plantations, but they're uh, they're not they're not slaves anymore. But they run this town, and you get deputized by someone who's affiliated with one of them, and this guy's drunk. And my my son was like, "Oh, you're gonna get, you're gonna kill this guy." And I was like, "I don't know." But the thing is, is they're supposed to be the good guys because he's the sheriff of the town, um, mm-hmm. and we're the bad guys. And he's like, "What?" And I was like, "Yes, we are actually in this game. You are playing the bad guys. You are the people who just run through town, steal things, and then shoot people when they offer resistance." You know, I, I'm, I'm sure it's possible to try to play um, Red Dead Redemption as a kind of a white hat, but I think that you end up having to go on missions where you probably shoot people who don't deserve to be shot. Um, and yeah, the best you can really do in that game is a version of harm reduction that you don't right. enjoy bad things you do and that you feel uncomfortable as the lead character does as that stuff gets less and less justifiable. That you're really not Robin Hood the way you want to be. That you're really just a violent thug taking things from people. <laughs> and, the, and of course, the whole thing, the funny thing about the karma system is it lets you exercise the, you're, it's already assuming that on a neutral level of karma, that people who are already bad who kill people and steal their things are okay to be killed and stolen from. Um, so in that sense, like the game is making a very, uh, the game and its characters are making a very particularly solid point about what's moral and what's not moral is, ah, those people deserve to die. Because <laughs> you, you do also, a lot of that. You do a lot of that. You can also balance out a lot of evil actions. You know, if you're, if you're robbing and killing innocent people, as long as you say howdy to enough people on the road as you go by, <laughs> it all kind of balances out, which I think... I always thought that's kind of a Bond villain thing, that they get a little karma point back when they make dinner for 007. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that's the thing that's funny with the game is that your morality is actually tied to the way the game ends. Oh. That uh, depending on what sort of ending your character gets, if you are a gleeful murderer, 
and um, you don't try to make up for it or don't try to limit what you do, then you get a darker ending than if uh, than if you try to be. And I, I always played the thing is this is a character who um, my version of Arthur Morgan when I played him was shot through the filter of I want to be a good person. And I grew up, you know, as a kid in this gang, I was raised by it. They're the only family I've ever known. And I thought of myself as a Robin Hood. And one of the things that's interesting is it's a it's actually a prequel to Red Dead Redemption 1. And in Red Dead Redemption 1, you play a different character from the gang who, during the events of this game, is shot and left for dead and decides to just say, fuck it, I quit, and goes off and tries to become a farmer with his wife and son, who were also grew up in that gang. And um, you find yourself... Um, being forced to hunt down those old gang members. And in this game, you're just thrown into the era of you being family with them. And the game starts out and you start to feel kind of guilty for the person you were playing Red Dead Redemption 1. And it's like you're talking to like Javier Escuela or uh, Bill Williamson or any of these other guys in the gang. And you're just starting to feel really kind of bad because it's like, oh, I fucked that guy over and handed him over to the feds <laughs> and the feds are fucking assholes. So that's a good way for maybe, I'm sorry, uh, for your son, you can, I'm going to bleep his name bleep. out. Sorry. Um, for, for your son to learn that uh, all cops are bastards <laughs> and uh, the game is not really good with, with cops. Um, I mean, it's good with cops in the sense that cops are shitty, but um, you start to feel guilty, but then the game is always that endless search for the, our last big score that we're, you know, we just have to do this one thing and then we're going to, you know, sail to Tahiti and live on the beach forever. And it's always one more thing. And then there's something goes wrong and there's always one more thing. And don't worry, the boss says, a sort of almost cult-like leader who's like a father figure to everyone, don't worry, I've got a plan. And we're this is all going to work out. And you're doing more needlessly violent things and you get the sense that this guy might be going crazy and the game is about you falling out of love with this family and realizing that you have to save yourself and other people from the fate that this guy is clearly driving them towards that and fishing and fishing, <laughs> which is actually very relaxing in that game. I, I, this is, I did realize how much uh, Rockstar has spoiled me for, uh, I mean, it's spoiled all of us for incredible detail in an open world simulation. I've been seeing some compilation videos of people who are upset about uh, CD Projekt Red's uh, new having Cyberpunk 2077 is it's a story focused game but when you go hang out in the areas that they don't necessarily care if you're there the details are just not because it's a different kind of studio and a different kind of budget Um, but I saw there was a video of just a random person in Red Dead Redemption eating a meal. And they mm-hmm. literally, like, piece by piece, the steak and potatoes disappear, bite by bite, uh, of just a random person eating at a random place, which is a level of immersion that is pretty amazing and hard to get anywhere else. Yeah, I, I was, I'll just point it out, because this is the one, I had one of those, it's, I was in Valentine in the first town and there's a storefront being worked on by a guy with a cart with boards on it. And uh, if you want to spend about five minutes, four or five minutes doing diversion, you can follow the guy from offloading, from unloading boards 
walking them around the building upstairs and placing them down and going and get, getting other ones. And then there's a certain point in time when he stops. And if you get too close for him, he gets scared that you're following him and says, why are you following me? But I mean, they bother to animate... <laughs> They bothered to animate a thing that would only happen if you were like, oh, I'm just going to creep behind this guy and watch him go for a couple minutes, meander around this town and do nothing of consequence. And that's, I mean, how many dozens of hours did they, maybe, well, not dozens, but how many hours did they spend doing that for just that one little moment, you know? Yeah. It it feels lived in, in a way that I haven't really seen in a lot of games, that a lot more of the buildings are buildings you can go inside of. That um, there is something real about the way that people act. Um, the other thing I think is, well, this is one of the strangest things in that game is that, you know, that thing that kicks in when you track somebody mm-hmm. and you can see the name of something like um, it'll say like stranger or it'll say like, you know, elk doe or, or, you know, small red fox or something. What I found is really strange in that game is that if it kicks in for a random person, it'll say like stranger or enemy or something, but their horse has a name. (laughs) That's great. Horses get names, but rando people don't. (laughs) And I don't know why that is. Like, it's just like, oh, Chester or, you know, you know, Hayseed or whatever the name of the horse is will pop up if you accidentally get tracking on for them. And I just, I find that kind of adorable that they name all the horses, (laughs) but they don't name the people. But yeah, I, I really, I really kind of love that game. And I think that Rockstar's best work has been in their period piece games. Because I think that a lot of their bad instincts get ironed out. I think we've we've talked at, at length on other shows about the weird kind of South Parky morality of the GTA games, which I love a lot. But there's just this kind of like dirtbag asshole um, kind of distanced arrogance about those games where the dumbest person in the world is a person who believes something sincerely. And it, the difference between, and this is true on South Park as well. There is no difference between someone who thinks we should really do something about climate change and somebody who uh, wants to get all swearing off of television. It's like, this is just a stupid person who wants me to change my behavior and they're stupid. And the, the smart, cool people don't believe anything. Um, but you don't get that in the Red Dead Redemption games. There's actual sense of wistfulness, that there is a morality there, that there is something that has, there's a sense of judgment on the world where it seems kind of like a lot of the GTA games are just like, everyone's stupid except for me. And um, it's so much better in Red Dead. I mean, it's so much better. Like there are characters that are like, uh, there are characters that are like, um, like uh, suffragists that you end up helping you get hired to guard their wagon through this mission. And all I could think about was if this is a GTA game, we'd be making fun of these women, (laughs) but we're not in this one. Yeah. I I was just going to say that if you compare just the tone from first Red Dead to this one, the second one is so much, it's so much less ironic, so much has so much less 
kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge stuff. I mean, obviously, if you compare it to GTA 4, Red Dead 1 to GTA 4, there's like no, it's like one is in Silly Town and the other is, you know, your your dad's true crime novel. Like that's the difference between them. But still in Red Dead 1, there's like a character that's strongly hinted is the devil. And, you know, you go to see them, you go to see a movie at the movie theater and it's like a, it's there's like a little cartoon about a person getting a parasite and having a worm come out of his butt, you know. There's still this kind mm-hmm. of juvenile juvenile fantastical humor and stuff that you that pops out in the first Red Dead Redemption. And in Red Dead 2 it seems so much more grounded and so much more wanting to create and maintain a simulation of a time that is heightened of course of course it's heightened but simulation of a time that seems self-consistent and if is is almost entirely devoid of irony um yeah and that was like i said I, I haven't seen enough of it to know of the weird little easter eggs and stuff that they probably put in there but yeah you do get the sense of um like you were talking about the idea of the pinkertons well you're you looking at something that happened really in history which is before there was a time when there were federal marshals or when there was an FBI or where most cities had a, you know, an actual police force, um, the Pinkertons were the guys that could be that could represent law and order. And they're a trope throughout uh, Westerns. But in reality, this game presents them as probably being far closer to they were in real life, which is that they're mercenaries. Um, mm-hmm. They're just rough men who... Uh, do not have a problem with meeting out violence and will will do what you ask uh, if you pay them. And most of them had no problem murdering people if they were asked to murder. And so, of course, in um, in Red Dead Redemption 2, they have things like the Sheriff of Rhodes being sort of a drunk, but that's not outside the realm of possibility for the real West. And yeah, I'm sure the Pinkertons were mostly bigoted, chauvinist, uh, uh, intolerant murderers. I'm sure that's the type of people that they hired. So in that sense, I just I don't I don't feel like they're they were are sort of ginning up a trope. I feel like they're trying to edge it closer to a more historical approach, and that's super laudable in my in my opinion. Especially when you look at that era, generally the Pinkertons are just people that are hired by rich men to either protect their property or to put down workers who would rather not starve to death and would like to get paid a decent wage. Uh, they were strike breakers and they stayed strike breakers for a long time. Um, these were not people who served the public good and they should be treated like villains. And uh, they are in this game. I mean, you're basically, I mean, you're villains too, but you're mainly being hunted by them because rich people don't want to be robbed. Not because the citizens together broke open their piggy banks and say, we don't want this gang around. It's rich guys. And um, rich guys have hired you because they, they're the one that own the bank that you're robbing. <laughs> right. Uh, I, I, haven't, I haven't finished it yet, Mike, but uh, uh, I, I have to agree. One of, the, one of the last few times that I got to see Patrick before everything went uh, tits up was um, we were going to see a movie. I can't remember if it was Clockwork Orange. Um, and you were talking, Patrick was talking about just the... Uh, the pull to want to go into the game and find a space of the wilderness that you'd never seen before and sit there and look around and wait for something to happen that's that is spontaneous um and the game is totally filled with those moments of that sort of mike says wistful the contemplative 
sort of moments of you looking at a mostly unspoiled place and it there is not a starker contrast to consider the dis- the, dif- the difference between Cyberpunk 2077 which is you know like a terrible paved over world versus uh you know that's that humans have crushed um versus a a world that's wild and open um that that the two can't be further apart uh and do you guys get a do you get a longing for that sort of sense of frontier of of open space i, f- I feel like it it's central to the plot which is that this gang of criminals isn't they're not, they're not criminals so much because that's their that's their deepest desire but because it's what they need to do in order to keep ever moving and to try and sort of keep keep the world off of their backs because they feel civilization kind of encroaching and that more and more there is no space for them to even exist um and that sense you feel the you know you you feel the reach of civilization is something that is pushing you out through the through the Mm -hmm. course of the game uh and but it's funny because that's how the game kind of gets you at the beginning and you, there is kind of something that the game sort of is saying about the sort of romance of being an outlaw that is in a lot of Western fiction. And then it sort of hits you slowly with the reality that, oh, yeah, we're really bad people. <laughs> and maybe it's a good thing that, you know, life isn't as, as I think it was, uh, was it Thomas Hobbes that uh, short brutish and it was a nasty brutish and short uh that life shouldn't be like that and that the person who's best with a gun is the person who's going to survive that we don't want to live in a world like you know mad max that we that it that's a wonderful thing for somebody who can ride and hunt and do all that stuff but for somebody like me who's very much an indoor cat that's like a fucking nightmare and I can only enjoy it through the perspective of a guy like Arthur Morgan, who is really good at all of that stuff. And then I can choose how he uses that power rather than just being an outright chaotic evil monster. I can be a guy who is a criminal, but as much of a gentleman criminal as you can be and tries to decide that, you know, maybe the people I hurt are the people who most deserve it while trying to limit, you know, hurting innocent people because the game gives you the opportunity to hurt innocent people. Yeah, it's, yeah but my, it, go ahead, Parker. Okay, go ahead. No, you go. You go. I was just gonna say that it's the th- there are still people who try and live um, live in the sense of wild that you you get through through a game like that that's trying to present a, a historical time and place, and it largely doesn't exist. Uh, and I, I do f- feel myself, you know, I, I am I am woefully I- ill-equipped for such a world. But then it didn't exist by the time that I was born. Um, the idea that you could just get on a horse and ride and that you don't necessarily, you're not crossing fence after fence after fence that belongs to someone else uh, in particular. That yeah. that the con- concepts of ownership, I think I just, I by the time that I was born, every inch of land that exists had been claimed by somebody. Yeah. Um, whereas that you, you can understand that there, there was a time when uh, the ownership didn't make didn't wasn't important in the same way that there were there were things that were allowed to just be and um, that they they had a collect, sort of collective purpose to them and that your identity wasn't tied to just what little what little square box that you were you were inside of um, and it's I, I 
but also you see that there's a cost to how they try and maintain freedom. You're, you're right that they are just despicable, terrible people. And that there's also a terrible cost to the people who are trying to bring the civilization. Uh, mm -hmm. That the, the civilizing forces, that there's a, a terrible brutality behind that as well. Yeah, that it's really no better. It's just it has the law behind it. That, I mean, you really, you have the army as a, as a moment in that game that is really just trying to take land away from a tribe. And <laughs> how... And in many ways are far worse than the gang that you're with, that they're doing it saying that they're, they, you know, there's just this veneer of we are civilized and you are not. So that gives us the right to ruin your way of life. And it's easy for even your gang to sympathize because it's like, hey, we hate these motherfuckers, too. And then you have a situation with Dutch, who is clearly using the conflict with this Native American tribe. Um, to enrich himself, that he is in many ways taking the younger members of the tribe and convincing them to do things that are straight up suicidal in conflict with the army uh, because he can use that as cover for his own crimes. And it, those are the moments where you really see how despicable the gang leader is. And those are the moments where your character who saw this guy as a father starts to realize, I need to get out of here. I, you know, I have, you know, the, I need to get the people and save the people that I can, but this is going to end really badly and you can feel that bad end coming. I, I, I really do think it's, I, I'm willing to say it's Rockstar's best game. Um, not just for how, how, I, how deep and how interesting, uh, and expansive the story and the world are and its sense of sincerity. I, I feel like, I feel like if, if, uh, as Patrick said, um, a, a, a couple years ago, and, and I still, I still think he's correct that we that uh, video games are still a medium that's new enough that we don't, but we still haven't decided what is the greatest video game that's ever been made because it may, may not have been made yet. But I'd be willing to think that Red Dead Redemption Two is probably a runner-up in that category. I, I think so too. Yeah, it's too bad. Too bad we won't get an expansion since uh, they're just, they're trying to create GTA Online and so far failing at it. But any new content that's made for it goes to the goes to the online. I, I'm just happy that we got the single player experience to begin with, because I do recognize that the likelihood of there being in like a Grand Theft Auto Six that is a robust single player uh, version is not likely to happen now. That they'll just continue to sort of develop Grand Theft Auto Five through the online bits and keep upgrading stuff that's uh, only playable through that section of the of the game. So I'm sort of happy. I'm uh, there. I'm, I'm not lamenting that piece at all. There's plenty of uh, development, developers big and small, making robust, interesting first uh, of single player stories. But yeah, I, I'm just grateful that we got what we got with Red Dead Redemption Two. And if we don't get Red Dead Redemption Three as a single player, it is a it's a loss. But still, I'm happy with what we got. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I do. I'm a bit sad about the loss of the single player experience. Um, I remember when I first got. Red Dead Redemption 2, I played a chunk of the single-player game, and then I got distracted for several months with the online game and building up my character and stuff there. And what I sort of found is when I finally, and it was after my cancer diagnosis that I had all this free time suddenly, I went back to the main game, and I realized just how much more vibrant and alive and organic that the single player experience is like the world itself feels more populated by animals and people and those things like watching that person build that house in Valentine 
because they can't allow time to really pass aside from weather changes in the online version because everyone's coming in and, you know, nobody wants to come in and all the houses are already built in Valentine. They're kind of stuck in a limbo. And because you have just the logistics of having to have a server carry all these players doing all these things and running all these missions that you have to cut corners. And then when I got back to that main game, it was just like this splash of cold water in the face. And then just a realization of, Oh my God, this is a credible achievement. And I worry a little bit that if all we have is games trying to accommodate multiple players, you know, coexisting on the same server, that you're going to lose a lot of that immersion that you get from the single-player experience, just from a technical level. See, certainly single-player is not, it's not dead. It's, uh, there's some of the, some really great single-player titles coming out uh, in, just in recent years. It's clearly, you know, there's some, there's some worry that it's going to go by the wayside. I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, but Cyberpunk the, is the, the biggest, was the, literally the biggest PC game launch in history, and it's a single-player game. And, so. Well, here's the trick, though, is that they do their hope in creating that world the size of it is, is to eventually make an online experience for it. Sure, that sure, they, sure they but we do have this. Sure, but we do have the single player experience and presumably forthcoming DLC. So even yep. even the hugest, biggest studios and and whatnot are still uh, making the single player experiences. So it's not just the slew of thousands of indie game titles that are doing it. But, uh, but I think that also oh, the, the, the level of having multiplayer kind of breaks that immersion in the sense that in the game of Red Dead Redemption, as an example, but it goes into every single one of these games, whether it's Fallout or whatever, that you are that lone character who has a pile of guns and is going on crazy adventures. Um, and it makes the rest of the world feel a bit more grounded that, yeah, there are adventure characters and stuff. But you also don't get the sort of behavior you get from a lot of online players, which breaks the fun a lot of the time because you get a lot of bullying bullshit of people that have all the best weapons in the game and are just running around trying to ruin people's fun. Um, that You don't get that. It doesn't feel like it's of the world. It feels like a chunk of your own world invading into this space that you're trying to immerse into. And um, that's the part of it where it just doesn't feel real where all the player characters have their own voice actors and are walking around doing their things. But then there's this person who's walking around in the craziest player created outfit ever doing weird shit and running around in circles and just attacking random people. And it doesn't feel of the world. Um, and it takes you out of it. And I, I'm not anti multiplayer. I like multiplayer as a supplement, but you know, it kind of, ruins the fun that the, the creators of the game made by making it feel less real. Yeah, it's hard to balance immersion with things like player economy. Uh, I heard Red Dead has been through a lot of revisions to try and balance the player economy. Uh, famously, at one point, a can of baked beans was worth more than gold. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but... I've heard, for example, the reason why one reason that there are so many few, that there's not many animals in the online in the multiplayer world is because players will kill them all and sell them, and that that ends up being too easy a way to make money, uh, which discourages people from buying your in-game currency. Um, so that those, those sorts of factors in games can cost come at the at the cost of the the real 
gameplay. But since we were talking earlier about sort of conditioned behavior from you know shows and and things, have you guys find yourself tracking a bird that flies overhead in real life trying to ID it <laughs> no no, no i haven't yet but i can see that i can definitely see that i have however i drive a delivery for a living and i'm on the freeway a lot and then you just see this burst of like purple flowers in the median divider between the two freeway lanes and i go oh like that for a second like i'm gonna stop and pick those flowers and i think the weirdest example of this when i was playing fallout 4 was I went with our friend Sam Mulvey to a Home Depot, and there was this display with a bunch of copper piping, and I went, ooh, copper. <laughs> because I'm used to that as something I need for crafting. Right. It is kind of rare, and just seeing that I had about a quarter of a second where I'm like, oh, I need this. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 people uh, have all these concerns, or have historically had all these concerns about violence in games, and, you know, some space marine game comes out they think is going to cause children to become more violent. But in a way, I think conditioned responses in games um, are of some note to me when they can be then recalled in real life. So the first time I ever had that experience was with taxi missions in Grand Theft Auto. Oh. You, see a ta- you see a taxi in real life, and some part of my brain was like, I should go run some taxi missions. <laughs> um, and there's, so there are, when you have those cues that, that you actually have an opportunity to relate to in your, in your waking world, uh, it, it's, it's interesting to see how, how games can have an effect on that. But it's kind of weird, though, because I think the way that capitalism works in a video game versus how it works in real life is very different, Um, that you can't just walk out and start grinding at random tasks and have all the money you'll ever need in real life. (laughs) Like, oh, I'm just going to go into this cave over here and hit the wall with an axe and I got a bunch of shit I can sell or I can make some pelts or I'm going to make some hats and then somebody will automatically want to buy them at any store I go. Um, (laughs) It just doesn't work that way. And you also don't have to like pay bills or go into debt or any of the other bullshit. You don't have to get a job because grinding is good enough. And it's kind of like you said about, I can just go out and kill a bunch of animals and I'll make a bunch of money and I'll have more than I need to replace my ammo and change out horse food and, and buy some new clothes because it just doesn't – real life isn't nearly as kind. It takes all the, the uh, exploitative, oppressive things out of capitalism and kind of in a weird way inoculates you about talking about it. It's just – it's very strange. But the idea that you can just simply grind and that I can have a house in Skyrim and I never have to pay property tax on it. <laughs> there's no rent. It's, there, there's no one that ever asks anything of me. I get to keep all the money I get. Unless I choose to spend it, and I don't even have to sleep if I don't want to. Um, it's it's very strange because it's not a real life simulator. It's sort of this heightened cartoon reality simulator, which is if it was too realistic, you wouldn't want to play it. Right. Uh, I've started playing uh, a early access game on Steam called Hard Space Shipbreaker. Oh my god! Uh, oh, I really, I really <laughs> want to play this game. I really want. So play this it game. is a. You are a spaceship uh, deconstructor. They're derelict spacecraft in in the spaceport above Earth, and you have sort of a grappling tool and a cutting tool, and your job is to rip apart the spaceships, salvage the expensive parts as quickly as possible, and move on to the next part. 
but you start uh, you start the game a billion credits in debt. Ooh. And so the purpose of the game is that you are trying to pay off your massive space debt. However, you have a 15-minute shift on each ship, and you're trying to get the expensive components out, and you get credit for what you can salvage. But you get charged for your equipment rentals and <laughs> uh, your dock usage, and every time you run out of oxygen, you have to run back to base and refuel, and they charge you credits to refuel your oxygen. And so if you're not fast enough at, at tearing apart spaceships, you actually just keep sinking deeper and deeper in debt. Oh, shit, it is capitalism, the game. <laughs> it's pretty great. <laughs> it's, it's, it's weird also, when we take something in real life that would be a fucking nightmare, and you can make it sound like a lot of fun to play when it's not really you. Yeah, yeah, it's... it's I have to give it credit for... I think it might be the first game in a new genre, in a way. I can't I can't think of another game that plays quite, quite a, along the same lines. Um, but then also, of all the of video games that just feel like a job, uh, it's one of the more enjoyable ones. Definitely sounds interesting. So, I have something um, I would like to talk about. It's something that I take no pleasure in, but I think I have a certain level of acceptance with it now. Um, and I think it was something that was, I think at an industry-wide level, decided on Christmas Day. And it's that I think the movie theater is finally, the, the studios at least, the movie theater is finally dying. That the release of Wonder Woman 1984 on HBO Max, we're talking, this Wonder Woman movie, it's a sequel to a massive blockbuster that was a huge hit. This is a movie that has a budget of well over $100 million. It's um, something that they wanted to release in theaters. And they held back releasing for nearly like the majority of a year. I think this was supposed to come out spring of last year, or at least summer of last year. And they held on to it. And that's the way that a lot of movie theaters have been closed because of obviously you've got the pandemic, but you can't release these things. But these MIG studios have blockbuster movies that the the operating budget of their entire uh, studio is wrapped around like, you know, you have a live action Mulan movie that they begrudgingly released. You could watch it for $30 a pop on Disney Plus and have since slowly released two different Pixar movies, Onward and Soul on Disney Plus. Um, but there's this real sense of we really still want to hold back on things like Black Widow or Fast and the Furious 9 or the Denny Villeneuve Dune movie. Like, we're holding back because we really want these to be in theaters. We really want to make our money back on this stuff. And it feels like the release of Wonder Woman 1984 was the acceptance of, of Warner Brothers slash AT&T that that change isn't going to come anytime soon and we really want to make our money back on Wonder Woman. And if that comes through trying to get more and more people to sign up for HBO Max, then that's what we have. And... I don't know. I, I feel kind of sad about it. And my emotional attachment comes from my one of my first jobs was at a movie theater in high school. And as far as, you know, crappy service jobs where you wear a name tag, you work a register, you have a food worker's card and um, you clean up after people. <laughs> that's the best possible version of that job. And it feels sad that other people don't get to, to have that experience that comes with 
having a couple years where you get to watch movies for free. And um, it feels like that world is going away now. And I don't know. They're already talking about releasing Dune on HBO Max. And is the streaming service release where you have to subscribe how many dollars a month to this? And, you know, is this the new model? And this being the new model, having to pay for these movies, does that mean that the cost of those subscription services is about to go up? I don't know. Yeah, I I, I mean, I share your... Here's what I here's the the short way that I think about it is for now the studios are saying we'll just release things on our own because we want to increase our subscribership. It doesn't mean that in 6 months they won't happily uh put movies in theaters the ones that are still around and it's the ones that are still around is the big question, right? Is I'm is I can't be certain that the neighborhood movie theater that is three, four blocks away from my house that has four screens and plays first run movies and is a is a great place to see movies, albeit it's a it's a you know, it's a kind of a old rundown experience. Uh, who knows if AMC will be in existence in six months. They may not be able to raise enough money by selling more of their worthless stock. Um uh, I th- tend to think of I thought for I thought for a while that movies theater should be museums. And then I met the guy who was the programmer for Seattle's local sort of uh um uh, b- was our sort of big tourist attraction for movies or Cinerama which is has now been shuttered for other reasons which is a part of this story. But he was talking about how uh when Denis Villeneuve's Blade Runner 2049 came out um, that move that movie theater, the the Seattle Cinerama sold out so many shows. Just that single screen movie theater was the did the top business in the country for that movie <laughs> um, because people wanted to go see it. People are in this town that has so many geeks, um, and people wanted to go see it in the in an awesome giant one screen theater. It was the one place in the whole country that did them, and I'm sure that mean, that also means the whole world, because I, I don't think even China probably sells as many tickets as we do to Blade Runner movies. Uh, and, I, and I was sort of surprised at that. I was saying, well, then, then obviously there's still a shit ton of money to be made with exhibition, even though even by that point, by two years ago, three years ago, um, people were people were going to movie theaters less and less. I think that movie theaters as a thing probably peaked with Avengers Endgame. Um, I think we'll never again see a have a theatrical experience that is a culmination of 10 years of theatrical experiences, is a huge tentpole release, is going to be sort of critically and commercially satisfying, and is the kind that you get people from very very young to very old to go watch. I, I think that's over. Um, I don't believe that movie theaters i believe that the movie theaters as an industry will be much 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 smaller and more niche um and the only thing that i can say for really selfish reasons um having them release more things online is good for me but the thing is is there's so much good so many good movies that are just released online now because the theater system the, the the exhibition system can't accommodate them. Um, and so mm-hmm. there's so many amazing movies. Like uh, my, my favorite movie of last year was a movie called Dogs Don't Wear Pants that was from Finland. And uh, I, th- I think it might have been possible 
that if the movie theaters were open, the local uh, SIF, the Seattle International Film Festival organization, which runs movies all year round, there is perhaps they would have played that for a weekend, maybe. Likely they they wouldn't they wouldn't have. Um, that was my favorite movie of last year, and it was never going to play in an AMC theater. And I'm happy that I'm able to find one of a few places online to be able to do it. So selfishly, yeah, being able to see Wonder Woman at home was okay. It was a it's a terrible movie to be the harbinger of the death of the of the movie <laughs> industry because it was not that good of a movie. Um, but I I one I I don't think movie theaters are gone. But I think what we'll see in a year is, uh, you know, AMC isn't around anymore. It's the Lowe's and Regal and whoever else is cinema, whoever else is are will be scrambling to keep screens open. And there will be and the movie studios will still want to have exclusive releases because they I, they, they I will, also wonder how the the type of movies get released are going to change, too, because the sort of movies that were getting released on on venues like Netflix and streaming services were often things that I think would have been big releases in previous decades, like the Irishman or marriage story Yeah, would have been big theatrical movies at one point. And I think that they actually found a bigger audience on Netflix than they would have found in a movie theater. This is true. And they're, and they're still paying those budgets. I mean, the Irishman was like a $200 million movie and that's about as much as you have for a big Hollywood movie. I think the, I think the thing that I, uh, I I don't think they're dead. I'm not I'm I'm not mourning anything. If there's one thing that I feel sad about, it's the idea that if they become if all of the movies just become sort of the the exclusive property of a, an individual streaming service, then we no longer have a sort of a water cooler base of us being able to be like, so you saw the new X movie this weekend? Because not all of us are going to subscribe to all of the services, and so it yeah. it won't be it won't be like. Hey, I, we like going to movies every weekend, so we're not all have going to be able to see the next DC movie or whatever because not all of us are going to be subscribed to HBO Max. And there's something sad about losing that part about having the mm-hmm. conversation about be about exclusives. I think one of the best movies I saw that last year too, uh, this year was uh, Boys State, which was a documentary about uh, kids in me- young men in Texas as teenagers who go and do mock government um, at the state capitol, and it was. A, it's such an insanely fascinating t- thing to line up with our own election this year and just the state of our country. That's a shockingly amazing movie. That sh- that movie should have done Fahrenheit 9-11 business um, because mm-hmm. of how how and and of, it wasn't a, full of distortions and polemic like Fahrenheit 9-11 was. It was actually a genuine, true, heartfelt look at real people. Um, and, uh, and I loved it, but I mean, people aren't going to have seen that movie because how few people are subscribed to Apple TV, not many, not many people. Um, and that's that losing that common ground for the conversation is the thing that I'm mourning right now. Well, it's, it's way more fractured. I mean, we've watched the fracturing of, of popular culture for a while now that there are more television shows out than ever. And oftentimes those television shows are using or adapting a franchise or a book or a movie or something that you've heard of characters that you've heard of with actors that, you know, and you've never heard of them. Like there was a get shorty TV show and I, I heard it was actually pretty good. I've <laughs> never seen it. Yeah. Um, yeah it's, like it's, it's strange that these things exist and things that I would recognize 
And there's so much stuff out there that having a water cooler show is seemingly impossible now. But, but maybe that's days, a good thing. Back in the days where you know sitcom television was so much more uh, universal, something that everyone uh, t- teed into primetime from time to time, the mass advertising for a new movie made sure, even if you didn't care about it at all, you knew that it was coming out. You you, you knew what, uh, what it, you know, you have the big, like you said, the water cooler, cooler shows aren't even necessarily things that you saw, but just things that you recognize as being a, a part of the zeitgeist or part of what people care about right now. With When it's on a streaming service, there's a lot less incentive to to advertise outside of your streaming service itself right like you you wouldn't pay millions of dollars to hit all of the prime tv markets because that's not where your audience is your Mm -hmm. audience is you you want to be able to splash that across the front page of netflix and then word of mouth does a lot of your work for you that people are saying hey have you you know have you seen stranger things um and so it does seem like that part is going to be we're going to be a lot less unified but i'm not i'm with you i'm not willing to I think maybe the movie theater will die and then we'll have to reinvent it because people still want that. They want uh, both that film experience that is for most of us still, even with better televisions and better sound systems, that there's something special about the theater experience for for a film that is is very difficult to replicate at home. Uh, And that people like going out, or at least we used to, uh, I think a lot of people are hungry. <laughs> people are hungry for that type of activity. The question is, how long is it going to take? Not just until it's safe, not just until vaccine rollouts are there, but until people are able to feel comfortable again. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and that is going to be. I think we're going to be dealing with some cultural fallout for a while of people just being com- getting comfortable again, being around people, even when common sense says it might be okay. Yeah. yeah, that's um, the thing, too, that I've kind of learned from this. If there's one thing that has finally sunk home with me, that you learn about how viruses and things get transmitted through particles in your saliva as you talk and yell and speak and sing, the thing that really hit me, and it's a thing I can't unlearn, it's a thing that'll horrify me until the day I die, is that before there was a virus in those <laughs> those particles of saliva that came out of your mouth when you speak... That we were just spitting in each other's faces. <laughs> and I can't not know that. Uh, and and doing podcasts, we're professional spitting in each other's faces. We're just doing yeah, it all the it's time. Just the, hum- the human body is fucking disgusting, man. <laughs> and we should all be ashamed. Uh, oh, like, don't worry, we are. Uh, where's that uh, singularity? Put make me a robot. I, I have to say one thing we'll announce before we drop the the movie theater. We're we're talking about this unknown time. Where people are are want to be out, they're going to be comfortable being around other people. I'm going to say here, this is an this is an announcement with a date that is to be continued, to be to be announced, a TBA date. Um, that I we will have when Mike and I both feel like we can do it, like we were vaccinated. Um, as a makeup for Captain Picard Day last year, I am going to personally organize what I have as my anti Captain Picard Day, which is John Polito Day. Um, and we are going to have a uh, a a screening of The Crow, starring John Polito as Gids, 
Um, I like that he's starring John Polito. Yeah, I mean, there's <laughs> another the, guy or a couple in there, but it's a John Polito movie. Um, and, uh, it's like Blade Runner starring M. Emmett Walsh. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll invite any any Radio vs. the Martians fans who want to come uh, around uh, the Seattle-Tacoma Western Washington area, or even further, and we'll uh, we'll host a movie night, uh, and it'll for John Polito Day. So when when we get to that vaunted day, uh, uh, Mike doesn't even Mike doesn't have to worry about this. I'll do all the work. Uh, we'll just we'll just put it out there and let you guys come and enjoy coming back together. But that's that's something we can look forward to at the end of this pandemic. Oh, that'll be wonderful. That'll be just so wonderful. Don't you remember just, that movie where John Polito died and then he came back to life as a as a specter who had a crow uh, familiar and he kicked ass? You don't remember that movie? <laughs> no, with his shirt like, off? Oh, hey, with his sh- hey, I'm the crow. I'm a brother Seamus. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I don't... I, you know, I'm going to admit something right now. I've never seen The Crow. Whoa. Whoa. Wow. How did that happen? Yeah, I don't know. I just i I was one of those people. I am exactly in the target demographic of that movie. Well, maybe not exactly because I'm not like um, a '90s hot topic kid, but uh, <laughs> I was a comic book kid, and that was a movie based on a comic book, and that was enough to make me want to see a lot of things that weren't very good back in the '90s, <laughs> like the Phantom movie. Oh yeah! Oh my god! <laughs> oh man! <laughs> I like that movie. Yeah, absolutely. I th- also think, just in very, very simple terms, that people want an excuse to leave their house. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, like even in ordinary times, we want it now more more than more than before. But uh, you know, people people like movies and the the theater experience. And if it's a good movie theater, can make all the difference in the world. But also, people just like feeling like they're not at home all the time you know it's it's sometimes it's good to to get cozy on the couch and you've got streaming services with as much content as you could ever want that's that's great but sometimes i want to meet up with a couple of friends and go out and have a shared experience um and that not being in my living room is kind of the point yeah i i I think it'll it's like i said i don't know if it's going to return in the mass numbers that the current movie theaters need right now almost everyone goes you know the amount of people who go to the movies sustains a massive industry that i don't know if is going to be sustainable post coronavirus but i do think that there is a need for something like it and so even if all of the theaters close down uh that they're gonna have to open them back up again because uh it's it's a part of our culture that we're we're not through with yeah like like with live sports People are hungry for it. It's not that it went out of fashion. It's just it became something that could kill you. And people <laughs> want that experience back. That being in a tight, controlled area where people are going to make noises and gasp and sneeze and, and yell and cheer uh, is just a thing we want to get back to in some way. We want to have that. Like when we saw John Wick 2 in the theater, that was one of my favorite movie experiences of all time. And I want that back. I want to collectively gasp with a bunch of people when something amazing happens. And it's a fun experience. And it's a a social experience, especially with a really fun comedy that makes it funnier than it might be if you're watching it alone. Absolutely. So I I think that's probably the the time we have for for today. Sure. Um, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us, Mr. Patrick Johnson. Thanks, Albert. 
And um, I also I want to thank our Patreon sponsors because we forgot to do that last month. Uh, we we did, and I, I think we also heaped so much praise on them before about sticking with us. So we do have to make sure to remember them. Thank you. Can you believe thank it or you. not? We actually have more of them than before the pandemic. That's, that is even more incredible because, uh, yeah, I, I you know Mike and I are definitely cognizant of how um we want to keep talking with you guys and you know we put the discord up we realize there are lots of our uh, of our fans that are just hungry um to to i've had people who have who've messaged me and said that they they kind of they miss us and they feel like they are missing out on hearing the our conversations and so we we want to keep giving it back to you we don't want to um uh you know we want 2021 to definitely be a strong year where we don't have to take breaks and we don't have to get exhausted. Uh, so I think, I think we, I think we're going to try to stay on this path. Don't you think Mike? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I enjoyed, I've missed this a lot. Yeah. This is, this is, it's not quite the movie theater experience, but no. <laughs> you know, I'm not in your basement talking into a microphone with you right now. So right. this is a lot of ways. This is methadone podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> But thanks, so yeah, I, thanks, I, Patreon subscribers. We really appreciate so sticking with us. We have sixteen of them right Whoa. now. That number has never been that high. I think wow, I think twelve or thirteen was our previous record. But um, these are the folks who have supported us at the episode sponsor level on Patreon. We want to say uh, we're, we want to toss out a very special thank you to Larry Brunswick, Margaret King, Tim Batson, Dan Nidecker, Don Tuvey. Tom the Belgian, Zuri Russell, Wim the Barbarian, Calzone, David Gutierrez, Jem Newman, Carol and Dave Brulette, Misa the Barbarian, James Brucker, Gus Lindgren, and Sterling Taylor. I want to say thank you to you folks. Uh, we really appreciate you guys. This has not been an easy year, and you guys have been uh, supporting us through all of that and stuck around and it's a very humbling thing to know that people are, are willing to to back us up, considering we haven't made them um, a Black Ops episode that's exclusive to those folks in over a year now. And, you know, I'm sorry, you know, you know, you've gone through the same shit we have, so you, you know what's going on. Um, but if you want to become a Patreon sponsor with us, please check us out at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. There's a green button on the right. Or go to patreon.com slash radio versus the Martians. And please, you know, hey, if you like what we do, um, help us out. We appreciate it. We definitely appreciate it. Thank you so much, Patrick. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, guys. And we'll catch you guys. Is it safe to say, Casey, next month? Yeah, safe to say. Safe to say. We'll catch you guys next month. Take care. Radio versus the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Val Verde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Dorn, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com.
got dressed all by myself. Ah, I can see that. And you did a very good job. But it's so early. I won't be late for the circus. The circus? Oh no, Caillou, that's not today. The circus isn't till tomorrow. No, no, it's today. <laughs> I got all dressed. <laughs> it's today. Come on, Caillou. Come downstairs and help me make breakfast. in a very bad mood because he wasn't going to the circus.